we're in a series of messages titled Seven, and it's, we're talking about the seven churches from the book of Revelation. Jesus had some extraordinary messages for seven churches, not unlike us. And what's really cool about these messages is we sometimes look at messages like this and say, well, that was for, you know, 2,100 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Reality is just as appropriate for us today. You know, when I was uh, growing up, I, I played basketball growing up and loved, I loved every minute of it. It took a lot of my time. And one of the things that was so very, uh, so very much a part of that was preparing to play. That's the best way to say it. And that meant getting into shape. And I can recall really two times in my basketball time. First was when I was a freshman in high school. And I started playing when I was about nine years old, organized, and then played all the way through college. I was in seventh grade, excuse me, in ninth grade, freshman, and I showed up with about 100 other guys ready to start for the season. And they had to weed us out. So we went through about three hours of just nothing but conditioning. That's all we did. And I can recall how incredibly sore and miserable I was. When I got home that day, I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to do this again tomorrow? Am I going to be able to endure this? Well, I went back the next day, and I can, I can still recall how much I hurt. I hurt everywhere, but I endured. I said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep preparing. I'm going to keep doing this. And eventually, I became a, a Viking. So there you go. It was great. Fast forward seven years. Now I'm a little older. I'm a senior in college. I've just finished, I've just finished my internship prepping for ministry, prepping to graduate. Marcy and I are married. And the, we into that semester, I couldn't do anything that first semester because I was involved, kind of immersed in ministry. And so when it came, when it came time, uh, I get ready for the second semester, uh, the coach of our, uh, of our college called me and said, hey, look, would you be willing to play? I said, we've had some transfers, we've got some guys ineligible, and I need to fill out the roster. And I said, okay, that'll be great. He said, all right, be here at 2 o'clock, ready to go. And I went, all right, I'll be there at 2 o'clock. Now, what was cool, our coach, his name was Coach, his name was Short. That's a great coach. That's a great, that's a great name for a basketball coach, don't you think? Coach Short. Not only that, he was short. That was the other part of it, the irony of it all. So anyway, I show up at 2 o'clock, and for the next three hours, all we did was run. And I mean, we ran. That's all we did. I went home that day to my wonderful new bride, who had fixed me my very favorite meal of all times, fried chicken and all of the fixings. I sat down at the table, and I said, I'm going to bed. I hurt in places I didn't know existed. And I went to bed. The next morning, I could not pull myself out of bed. I, could, I literally, I rolled off of the bed onto the floor. It was about as pathetic of a, of a display as anyone could ever imagine. And I thought, how in the world? And went back, and for the next, you know, five, six days, that's all we did was condition and get ready. We prepared for what was yet to come. We kept repeating the same things over and over again for something that was yet to come. And I want to leave this phrase with you this morning as we begin our message. Repeating the right things spurs us, spurs us on to do even better things. Repeating the right things spurs us on to do even better things. Now, in relationship to basketball, that's fine. But in relationship to faith, doing the right things over and over again, will spur us on to even better things. I want to talk about that a little while this morning. And we're going to talk about a church that 
by the name of Thyatira. It's a little city. In fact, it was a very little city. It was an unknown place. It was a backwater village in many respects. It, it didn't have any prominence whatsoever. In fact, it was, it was expendable according to Rome. Rome didn't care if, uh, if an army marched through it and sacked the city. They didn't care. There was not much about it. I wonder, I wonder if there's anyone that knows where Bray, California is. Bray, not Brea, Bray. B-R-A-Y, Bray, California. How about Tennant, California? Yeah, you probably don't. I know where they both are. And the reason I know where they are, when I would drive home, I would, hi- I would go through up Highway 97 North out of Weed, California, and about 10 miles south of a little place called Grass Lake, which doesn't really exist other than there's a lake filled with grass. That's it. There is a, there is a road that you, if you turn right... On Forest Road, Forest Service Road 44Y, excuse me, 44 and 10Y, about 10 miles out, you will find the incredibly bustling metropolis of Bray, California, which is basically a spot on the road. There's nothing else there. Why do I mention it? Because that's essentially what Thyatira was. It was a backwater village. It had had so little to do with anything. It was not important. It was the least important. It was the smallest it was insignificant. It was compar- comparable to Ephesus. It didn't even compare. It'd be like comparing Bray, California to Los Angeles. There is just no comparison. But yet it had a message that Jesus wanted to leave with that church that's significant, not just for Thyatira, but it's significant for us. The only claim to fame that the city of Thyatira would have had, it, had, it was known for its trade guilds or its trade unions. And there were unions literally for everything in the city. Whether it was the manufacture of cloth, the dyeing of materials, linens, uh, even metalworking. There were a trade guild for everything. And along with the trade guild, there were, some, there were some things that would be natural for that guild. For example, each of the trade guilds would have its own specific god or deity. It would have an idol dedicated to that particular trade. There would be festivals, the, 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 kind of the social life of Thyatira was surrounded by the trade guilds. And so within that trade guild, they would have dinners, they would have uh, all kinds of festivals. Included in those dinners would be the eating of food sacrificed to idols, which was for a follower of Christ was something that you did not participate. In, a, in addition to that, There was also sexual immorality that would have been connected to those festivals. So you can see there were some things happening in Thyatira that were challenging to people of faith. And Jesus addresses this church with a very significant message. How did a church in Thyatira, a little tiny backwater town, even get started? Probably by a woman by the name of Lydia. We read about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. On the Sabbath... This is Luke writing about the Apostle Paul. He says, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank. They're in Philippi, by the way, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them, listen to this, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. So she is a part of a trade guild in Thyatira, but now is in Philippi, meeting with others out by the river. Paul shows up, 
And then we read about what happened to Lydia. She said she was a, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. Now listen to this. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be your guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home, and she urged us until we agreed. Most likely, not absolutely convinced, but that is a good possibility of how the church in Thyatira began, was through the faithful witness of a woman by the name of Lydia. It was a very minor city. But why, why would Jesus take a moment and share a significant message with a city like Thyatira? Well, a couple of thoughts. First is this. Small, small doesn't mean, small doesn't mean insignificant. Sometimes we look at the small things in life and we look at it and say, well, what difference does it make? And that makes a lot of difference. And it's interesting that even though this is the smallest city, it has the longest message. Of all of the cities of Asia that Jesus addresses, this is the longest message to any of the churches. So small doesn't mean insignificant. Chuck Swindoll, he made a great statement. He said, big problems, big problems can occur in little places. Don't be surprised. So sometimes we look at things as being small and insignificant, but there are some serious things that can come out of even the smallest of things. And the second part of this is really a word of encouragement. Jesus recognizes this very small backwater village, and he speaks life to them. He speaks a message to them. They're not out of his view and concern. And I think there's significance for us there. Can I just be honest? There are times I feel less than significant. I feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm not making a difference with my life. I don't know, maybe you felt that way. Like, what's, like what's the point? I mean, I just kind of go through life. I'm like a squirrel in a cage. I seem to make no difference at all. I want to tell you, I believe one of the things we take away from this message that Jesus gives the church at Thyatira is that there is nothing insignificant in life when we do it as unto the Lord. He, he sees our life and he commends us and he encourages us in that. Psalm 10 verse 17 says, and these verses that I just read aren't in your notes, but Psalm 10 17 says, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You, love this, you encourage them and you listen to their cry. I want you to be encouraged today. Know that Jesus sees exactly where you are and all that you, that you're enduring, all of the things that you're experiencing, all of your thoughts, and he wants to encourage you. He wants to know you're in my view, and that's a good thing. So let's take a moment or two and read through the passage. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. It's in your program. It's also on the screen for you. So look at it with me if you would. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that, you're, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her and suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds." 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray in these moments, encourage us and strengthen us by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to follow a very similar outline as I did last week. These are very similar messages. So the first thought is this, the description of Jesus. The description of Jesus. There are three different terms that Jesus uses to describe himself. Son of God, eyes with blazing fire, and feet burnished like bronze. And it really speaks to really a level of authority that is incomparable. First, Son of God. Son of God. It speaks to his undeniable deity. God, this is God himself who is speaking a message. Of, of, you know, really it is a, it's a corrective message, but it's also a message that is incredibly encouraging when we look deeply at it. When you hear the phrase Son of God, it speaks to the deity of Christ. John chapter 1 helps us. In the beginning, the word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God and created. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought light to everyone. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. It is important to understand that the message that is given to Thyatira comes from God Himself. The second part of this description is eyes like a blazing fire. When I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I was probably a typical little boy, get into mischief now and again. I know that's hard to believe because I'm so perfect at this point in my life. Uh, I still get into mischief, I think. Uh, Don't ask my wife about that. She will either, she will deny it, I'm sure. But I will tell you something. I couldn't get away with a thing when I was a kid. Not a thing. Have you ever heard the phrase, you have eyes in the back of your head? That was my mother. I couldn't do anything. She, she knew everything I was doing. I couldn't get into trouble without getting into trouble. She saw it. Well, in some respects, I don't want to make light of this description of Jesus, but it really speaks to his penetrating vision. There is an undeniable deity. This is God himself. But now there's a penetrating vision that Jesus has that it is, is very descriptive. Eyes like a blazing fire. Understand this, nothing is beyond his ability to see. On the one side, that can be a little fear, that can be a little frightening if we're getting into mischief. Because he sees everything. But on the other side, it can be tremendously encouraging because he sees everything. There's nothing you and I will ever walk through, no matter where it is, no matter how difficult, no matter how deep the waters, how high the mountains, how difficult life is, that he does not see us. It's not insignificant. It's not out of his sight. And frankly, I am grateful for that. Proverbs 5 says, For the ways of man are directly before the eyes of the Lord. And he carefully watches all of his paths, all of his comings, 
and goings. Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Understand this, Jesus sees everything. Thyatira is a small place. It is insignificant in everybody's eyes except his. Jesus sees what's going on. And I would suggest to all of us this morning, we might feel very insignificant. We may feel like we're very much off the radar, that nothing in our life, no one cares about, no one sees, but I want you to know Jesus does. Now that can be encouraging or it can be frightening. Are we living in mischief or are we living in a place of the favor of God. He sees. He sees. And lastly, his, this burnished bronze feet really speaks of his authority, but especially to Thyatira. Remember, there is a trade guild dedicated to metalworking. So at least that trade guild's going to, whoa, wait, wait a minute, even this, even this. Jesus has authority. He is the Son of God. He sees all, and he has established his authority over all things. The second thought is, Great description of Jesus, but then the church is commended. Commended. I had a phone call this past week from a dear friend, some dear friends. Known them for probably close to 30 years now. And I can't go into their entire story. It's a, it's a, it's a fabulous story of God's redemption and healing and restoration. It's really cool. But they called me and they were giving me an update on, on a ministry that God has really put on their hearts. And I said, oh, this is really neat. And I said, we don't, and they said, what, you probably want to know why we're calling. I said, yeah. So they went through some of that. And I said, well, I'm honored that you would call. And, and I said, you know, I just don't know. And then they made this statement. They said, you don't know how significant you were in our lives. And I went, I really don't feel like I did anything. I feel like I just kind of did what I felt was right at the time. They said, no, it was far more than that. What you did was more than just being right, doing something that's right. It spoke life to us and brought encouragement to us. I want to tell you something. I was humbled. I was humbled beyond. I was humbled to the point of tears. Because to be honest, I didn't think I'd made any investment in them. I didn't think there was anything that I could have done. And you see, I wonder how many times we think the exact same way about just doing things that are right. Not the extraordinary. You know, we sang a song this morning that mentioned this, you know, the opening of the Red Sea. Sometimes if we don't think we kind of walk where Moses walked and, you know, the sea parts, then we really aren't doing anything for God. Or, you know, we don't strike the rock and the water comes out. Huh, I'm not doing anything for God. We, we just do the right things. We just kind of do the normal things of faith and nobody cares, nobody sees. And I want you to know there's nothing farther from the truth. Jesus sees everything that we do. Understand what he is commending them for. He says, I know of your love. I know of your faith. I know of your service. I know of your perseverance. He sees these things. They're just the right things. But he sees them and he commends them for it. That is so significant to me. Because often we walk through our lives and we think our lives just simply don't matter. And we live according to what love is, that it's the greatest of all commandments and to love our neighbor as ourselves is second. It's the second most. We look at faith in this reliability and the dependability that faith is. 
We look at service and the ministry that we give to others. We, we look at perseverance and we say, I'm just carrying on. I just keep pressing on. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. We say, what's the point? And Jesus said, no, I'm commending you for that. I see your love. I see your faith. I see your service. I see your perseverance. And then he adds this. And I love this. He says, and I also see that you're doing more than you did when you first started. In other words, I see the increase of your life. And he commends us for that. I love that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says you need to know, friends. And Paul says, so well, you need to know, friends, that thanking God for you is not only a pleasure, it's a must. We have to do it. Your faith is growing phenomenally and your love for each other is developing wonderfully. God sees these things. I'm, I'm challenged by this last commendation. This doing more. You know, and I wonder, I could ask this question of myself and I'll ask it of me, but all of us. Is my love increasing? Is my faith increasing? Is my service increasing? Is my perseverance increasing? That's what Jesus says. Now, I'm not here to make a political statement at all, but in the 1984 presidential election, Ronald Reagan made this statement. He said, are you better off than you were four years ago? Now, that was in a political context, and he was speaking economically. Now, I'm not talking about that. And I want you to dismiss the political side of that away completely, but I want to ask you this. Are you better off? Are you, have you grown more? Are you better off than you were four days ago? Are you growing your life of faith? Or is it just somewhat on hold? Because Jesus commends the church at Thyatira, this little backwater village that nobody really cares about. Jesus cares about them. And he says, I know of your love. I know of your faith. I know of your service. I know of your perseverance. And I know that you're increasing in all of that. So the same question is back to me. He may know of the good things that I may be doing. He, may know, he will know of the good things that we are doing, but but are we better off than we were four days ago? Are we growing our faith? Are we growing our love? Are we growing our ministry? Are we growing our perseverance? Critical point to consider. He commends the church for that. Third, there's this correction needed. He's identified himself in his undeniable deity. He has, he's commended the church for good things. But now the correction part, again, this phrase that we've seen a couple of times in this series, nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm telling you, that has got to be a sobering thing to hear from the, from, the, from the voice of the Lord. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And it focuses primarily on a character who's named Jezebel. Now, most likely, it's not an actual person named Jezebel, but it probably is a woman within the church. There's different viewpoints about that, but this most likely a woman in the church. The the Jezebel name was not a Greek name. This was not something common to the time. But it was a reference to the character. Okay, catch this. The character of an Old Testament personage, or personality rather. Jezebel, who was the wife of King Ahab. King Ahab was probably the most wicked king that, that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had. If he wasn't the most wicked king, he was probably in the top one or so. In other words, he was, he was not a good guy in any, in any way, shape, or form. He went even farther off the rails when he married Jezebel, who was the, king, who was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, another 
kingdom that was just completely opposite of the character and nature of God. And again, going totally contrary to the things of God. She introduced nationwide in Israel Baal worship. She set up a temple of Baal. She, she paid for the, the prophets of Baal. In fact, you read in the story of Elijah that Elijah had a confrontation with 450 of them, and he won, or actually God won. But Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you before the day is over. Elijah ran away and went into a depressive state. God brought him out of it, but she was, she was formidable. But her character is what is being referenced here. Jesus is clear. He said, you, you tolerate this woman Jezebel, that woman Jezebel, for a number of reasons. The first is she calls herself a prophetess. Now, she claims, here's what she claims. She claims to be speaking, hear, hear, hear this carefully. She claims to be speaking the deeper things of God. Can I just stop for a moment? If somebody comes up to you and says, I have some deeper things to talk to you about from God, the bells and whistles ought to be going off in your mind. Red flags need to be flying. That is a very, very difficult, difficult thing to hear or experience. Second Timothy, let me say it this way. She was saying things that were appealing to some. Listen to what Paul said to, the, to Timothy. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and they'll chase after myths. I want to tell you something. Open your eyes because it's everywhere. Deep things. In fact, Jesus would go on and say this, of Satan's so-called secrets. What? She claims to be a prophetess. She claims to be, and she's saying things that are appealing to the masses, but Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, there's something here that's not right, and you need to understand it. The second thing is that she promotes, she promotes pagan involvement. You say, where does this come from? Well, she's talking about food sacrificed to idols. She's talking about, Jesus is talking about sexual immorality. Where are these things beginning to happen? They are happening in the trade guilds. That was typical of Thyatira. It's happening so she could very well be telling those within the church, here are the deep things of God. It's okay to participate because this is your job. Your job depends upon your involvement and if it's compromised, it's okay, because it's your job, and these are the deeper things. Could be, but understand and remember, our livelihood, the source of our income, does not come from your employer. It comes from God and God alone. He is your source, and He is our source. When there is a call to compromise, it's time to turn the other way. We were pastoring in the Bay Area a number of years ago, and I had a, uh, we were pastoring in Burlingame. It was near the San Francisco airport. I was in my office one day, and I got, a, I got a phone call from a guy in the church. His name was Peter. He said, Gary, Pastor Gary, this is, this is Peter. And I said, hey, Peter, how are you? He said, well, I got a dilemma. I said, all right, what's going on? He said, well, my boss has asked me to do X, and he kind of laid out what it was. And he said, it's not right. 
said, this is not true, this isn't right. And he went on down, he went on down why he couldn't do it. And I, he said, this is wrong. And he says, but here's what's happened. He's told me that if I don't do it, I will lose my job. He says, and Pastor, I don't know what to do. He says, I, I don't know what to do. I said, well, Peter, let me ask you. I've got, a, I've got something I've got, I will share with you. But I want to hear, what do you think you should do? And he says, well, here's what I think I should do is to stand true to my convictions and trust God through this and believe that he'll take care of me. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. And I said, well, Peter, that's exactly what I would have told you. Stand true to your convictions and trust in God. He goes, well, he says, that was a confirmation I needed. He called me back in a few days and said, I followed through with, you know, I did not do what he told me to do, and sure enough, he fired me. And I said, Peter, we're going to trust God through this. We're going to believe that the Lord's going to do something for you. He goes, I'm with you. And it wasn't but just a few days. I don't remember how long it was. It's been a lot of years, but I will tell you. Peter called me and said, Pastor, you got it, man? I said, sure. He said, I just want you to know. I got a job. And I went, that's fabulous. He says, not only did I get a job, I got a job that pays me more. The hours are better. I can be home with my family more. God has made a way for me. Trust God as your source. Compromise isn't the answer. And Jesus is saying to this church, don't do this. Because there are some in the church that were doing that. Don't do it. Remember Philippians 4.19. And I used the Passion Translation specific, because I love the way it's phrased. This is, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the verse kind of traditionally. Look at the way the, the Passion writes it. I am convinced that my God will fully satisfy every need. I love that. God will fully satisfy your needs. Trust him. The third thing that Jesus speaks to them about is Thyatira's tolerance. It's tolerance. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, it's what we read. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. There's a tolerance here. Now, the church is tolerating. Hear this. The church is tolerating what she's doing. And Jesus is very clear. She will be judged, and those who follow her ways will be judged. God have mercy on us as a church if we tolerate false teachers and false teaching. We cannot, we dare not. Do you ever see those bumper stickers? It's diabolical because what it says to the church that no, it's just every path leads to God. Every way is good. Everything is equal. Man, it sounds so appealing and it sounds so good because this just draws everybody into the same conversation. Well, I'm here to tell you it is not good. It may be appealing to some, but it is absolutely reprehensible if we as the church of Jesus Christ embrace a tolerance and a coexistence as it is described on these bumper stickers. Listen to this. 2016 study, it's the most recent I could find. The Barna Group is a group that studies church life throughout America and probably the world, but mostly America. They did a study about morality and truth. Okay, so there's the, kind of the, the big picture, morality and truth. And here's what they discovered. You ready for this? 42% of practicing Christians. Okay, now these are not just people every, you know, every 
Can it in every walk of life? No, they're every walk of life, but these are followers. These are Christ followers. These are self-identified individuals who follow Christ. They would say, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. And they would give a definition of what that means. They would be a Christian. 42% agree somewhat or strongly agree that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you know. Four out of ten practicing Christians say there is such a thing as relative truth. Your truth is good for you, my truth is good for me, and that's all that really matters. That is coexistence, that is tolerance, and Jesus says, no. No. As your pastor, I'm called to protect this church, protect you as best I can to pray, to study, to believe, to research so that we are not captivated by false teaching or false teachers. I will always err on the side of conservative theology. I always will. You may not like some of the outcomes of that, but I will always err. Why? Because I will not tolerate false teaching or false teachers. I will not tolerate here within this local body of believers anything that would be confused as tolerance or coexistence. There is only one truth, and that is the truth of the living God as revealed in His Word, and there is no no other truth. Paul said in Acts 20, guard yourselves in God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, speaking to pastors, purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw following. And here it is, not just for teachers, watch out. Watch out. Watch out. So I take my role seriously, but I challenge everyone in the room to this phrase. Be doggedly determined to know your faith and grow your faith. I chose that word doggedly very intentionally. There are other words that I could have used, but I chose doggedly. This little, I, I look at it, I remember my dad used to walk about two, three miles every day, and he had this little dog that followed him everywhere he went, and it would nip at his heels. It drove my dad out of his mind. He'd just not nip, he would bark and nip, and yeah, he, just, he was dogged. He wouldn't stop. And I want us to be a, a, a people of God at this location of this church, of Crossroads Church, to be doggedly determined to know what we believe and grow our faith. Jesus commends this church for doing that. Remember, this is an out-of-the-way, backwoods place. Nobody cares. It's insignificant. I don't believe that's what we are, but I want you to know, if God, if Jesus is calling them to have a dogged determination to know their faith and grow their faith, he's calling us to the same. That doesn't change. Knowing what we believe will guard against embracing false teaching and teachers. Knowing what we believe will guard against Embracing false teaching and teachers. In fact, knowing, knowing what's true exposes what's false. You know, you probably heard this. The Treasury Department, if, you have, if you're tasked with studying counterfeit, you know what they will tell you to do? Is study the genuine, not the counterfeit. 
It's the study of the genuine. It's the feeling of the paper. It's the ink. It's everything connected to the genuine article that exposes what's false. Don't spend time trying to identify false teaching. Spend your time investing in what is true so that what is false becomes exposed naturally because we know what is true. John S. Dickerson, I I referenced him a lot earlier in the year, uh, last year. Book, Hope for Nations, incredible book, incredible book. Listen to what John said. He says, in a world where truth is feelings-based, in a world where truth is feelings-based, we, as the church, will remain rooted to the Christian scriptures and their life-giving direction. That is a challenge for us as followers of Christ, is to be rooted to the Christian scriptures. Understand, I suggest this, the only way to know what you believe is to know the scriptures and put it into a practice without apology what they declare. This book is the revelation of God to us, and we would make no apology to believe it and to put it into practice. I'm just going to give you one declaration this morning, just one, that this eternal word proclaims. Matthew 7, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few find it. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only one who can save people. No one else in this world is able to save us. There is no other way to find God other than through Jesus Christ, Son of God. Without apology, I make that declaration. Followers of Christ make that declaration unapologetically. You're doing, you're doing our you, you, friends and neighbors and colleagues a disservice. It's just every way's good. Every, it may seem good, but it will lead towards, it's the wide road. It's not the narrow gate. Jesus is how we come to be in favor with God and to know God. There's no other way. Not only is knowing our faith Incredibly important, but growing our faith is. Revelation 2.25, Jesus said this. He said, hold on to what you have until I come. Growing, growing our faith is an act of obedience. We have to do this. I love the way Jesus said this. He said, I, I know of your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're increasing that. And then he says in verse 25, hold on to that. Hold on to that. Keep pushing it forward. Hold on to it. Increase your love, faith, service. Peter wrote it this way. One of my favorite passages in all the scriptures, and I think my favorite verse in all the scripture, is in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. It's all there. Now look at this. For, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities, look at this, in what? Increasing measure. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here's my favorite verse, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow your faith. All we need, all we need to grow, God has made available to us. Be rooted in Scripture. Be committed to prayer. Be dedicated in worship. Be connected in relationships and be activated in service. Finally, there's a reward. There's a reward for overcoming. Jesus said, I'll give. Now, I said this last week, but it bears repeating. I don't serve God for the reward. I don't obey him because there's a reward. But there's a reward. It's there. I will give. Jesus makes that promise. I'm okay with that. He gives us authority over the nations, he says. He says, I'll give you the morning star. That's himself. That's just giving him us himself, even in a more personal and up-close way. Revelation 2.23, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to his deeds. Now, I get this. We will look at that mostly through the lens, and it is in the judgment section. I get it, of the, of the change-needed section. But you know something? God's going to reward you, reward us for our faithfulness and our obedience, for our overcoming. It's a reward that's guaranteed and promised to us. So as we bring our time to a close, two things have stood out very prominently to me. I've talked about them quite a bit, but just to reemphasize, Jesus commending the church for doing more. That really, that really strikes me. Can I just, I want to challenge you again. Grow your faith. Grow your faith. Put things in place in your life to grow your faith. The younger you can do this, the stronger you will be as you move through life. You say, but okay, I've, I'm like 43 years old. What do I do? Start now. Put things in place now. We say it a lot, but I'll say it again. Over 300 million downloads of the YouVersion Bible app. Over 300 million. Why do I say that? Because there are tools available. We take our smartphones everywhere. I was driving home yesterday. I don't know where I was. I had been somewhere. It's nice that I got home, you know. Don't even remember where I was, but I was on my way home. And I happened to look behind me, as most of us are looking in a rearview mirror. You don't think much about it. And the mom was driving the car. And there was a young man sitting next to her. I don't know. He may have been 16, 17 years old, older. He was slumped down in his, slumped down in his seat. Probably something I would have done when I was his age. But here was this device in front of him. I'm not making a critical statement. I'm just making an obvious one. We carry him everywhere. And the YouVersion app, by the way, has a, uh, you can push and you can listen to the Bible. If you don't want to read, listen. Get the Word of God into your heart, into your soul. Into your mind. We really, we really don't have an excuse. If you commute, you got time. There it is. And even if you don't commute, we will find the time for the things that we value. I know that. It's just true, isn't it? 
be rooted in the Christian scriptures, John said. I love the fact that Jesus commends them for doing more. So do more. Second thing is that Jesus encouraged them to hold on to what they have. I want you to know Jesus sees your faith, your service, your love, your perseverance. He sees that you are doing all you can to increase your faith. Hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Hold on to that. Jesus commends the church for that. He commends us for that. Now, I want to just read this phrase. I'm going to read it as I wrote it. So listen to it. Is it reasonable, is it reasonable to believe if we make continual spiritual progress, if we hold on to what we have and we keep at it with all diligence, will we, will we be less likely to tolerate that which is contrary to things of God? If we, if we keep pushing things forward, if we know what we believe, if we're growing our faith, if we are immersing ourselves in the Word of God, if we are committed to the Christian Scriptures, if we are dedicated to prayer, if we're involved in being connected relationally and spiritually with others, if we are active in service, well, will we be less likely to tolerate that which is contrary to the things of God? I would have to say, yeah, yeah. Your second question. Will we be more inclined to trust God in His ways even when the pressure is intense to do the opposite? Say, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you, we've been saying it, and one of the things that this series of messages overwhelmingly points out, persecution is a reality for those who follow Jesus, no matter what century in which we live. It's a reality. Things aren't going to get easier. They'll get more intense. How will we then live? Finally, I would just say I believe the answer to both of those is, a, is an emphatic yes. So I leave this with you one last time. Be doggedly determined to know your faith and to grow your faith. Father, thank you for your word this morning. So we bring our time to a close, Jesus. Speak life to us in your name. Amen. Amen. Before we go into a, one last song and a time of prayer, a couple of questions. First question is this. I love this phrase, or do you have a real relationship with Jesus? I love that idea of real. Because in, in the scheme of things, you say the word Jesus, or you talk about the person, Jesus, Everybody has a little bit of knowledge as to who that is. Even if it's not complete or totally accurate, they have a little bit of knowledge. But I'm talking about a real relationship with him. And that real relationship, what do I mean by that? I mean, have you, have you declared Jesus as Lord of your life? And that's really significant. Saying, Jesus, I, I, you're Lord. In other words, go back to the first century. These churches are talking about they were having to make a decision to either say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. There's a lot of Caesars in our life. Let that sink in a minute. There's a lot of Caesars out there competing for your loyalty and your lordship. Who are we going to yield to? Who really is Lord of our life? 
Do we have a real relationship with Jesus? Have we made him our Lord? The scriptures are clear. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I make no apology for that. That's what changed my life. Is when I yielded to him and say, be Lord. Take charge. So I'm asking, do you have a real relationship with Jesus? In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And if where you are, you say, no, I really don't. But I want to. Or maybe you're just so unsure. You just, I'm just not sure. Don't walk away unsure. Just pray with me and declare that. Jesus, your Lord. And then let somebody know. Take a connect card. Let us know. I declare Jesus Lord today so we can journey this with you. Second one, I'm going to call, I'm going to call you to raise a hand here with eyes open and no heads bowed. And I'm going to raise my hand first. I want to grow. I want to know my faith, and I want to grow my faith. Before you raise your hand, <laughs> I caught you, caught you. Before you raise your hand, understand the implications of it. Okay? Making a declaration with my hand does not mean that it's going to automatically and passively happen. There has to be action connected to that. So if I'm saying, I want to know my faith, all right, study the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Let, memorize the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Say, I'm going to be a part of a life group. I'm going to get connected so that I can have iron sharpening iron, so that I can be in a place where I can grow my faith with other believers. I am going to commit to being in weekend worship services, not because this is something, no, you need this. It's not enough, but you need this. It also means I'm going to be active in service. Why? Because service is a part of what Jesus commended the church at Thyatira. He said, I know of your love. I know of your faith. And you say, i got those two. I know of your service. Oh. Well, anything else? Perseverance. Okay, I got that one. And then Jesus adds, and doing more of that. So, when you raise a hand, understand what it means to know your faith, then to grow your faith. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. So now, if you're like me, you want to grow your faith and know your faith, lift your hand with me. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing among those in the room. Jesus, see these hands. These are just a, we're just making commitments, Lord. God, I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word. I pray that you would cause us to follow our knees and spend time with you in prayer. I pray, Lord, that we would connect with other believers and let iron sharpen iron. I pray, Lord, that we would be active in service. I pray, Lord, that you will do amazing things as we connect together and worship on these weekends. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, grow us into that which you want us to be. Just let us apply 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let it be something that captivates our life. Thank you, Lord.